And so I uh, didn't really think about it much until I became a pastor. And, um, you know, the cooperative program is uh, the way that we as Southern Baptists fund missions around the world. And uh, not only did my parents kind of instill in me a commitment to missions, but I guess somewhere in the midst of my raising, I learned about the cooperative program, the way that we invest our money in building God's kingdom around the world. Um, I guess I'm also committed to the cooperative program partly because I am a product of the cooperative program. Um, not only my college education, but I know when I got to seminary, true not only for me, but Byron recently, half of my education, the cost of my education was taken care of uh, through money that Southern Baptist gave. And so, uh, really, I just paid for about half of that. And I don't remember ever worrying about making a tuition payment, strangely enough. And we weren't making a whole lot of money, but somehow... That's before you have kids. It seems like there's all this money when you don't have kids. But anyhow, that's a whole other sermon. Um, so as a pastor, I have uh, been committed to the cooperative program, to missions, and it's something I've tried to pass down in the churches that I've pastored. Um, some of you all know that recently I, uh, on behalf of the church, was able to receive a, an award for our cooperative program giving uh, at the state convention and a story that I told in our testimony of our church was uh, years ago uh, I'll never forget it a story uh, uh, of a testimony from Pat Porter and some of y'all were here that night it was a family conference I remember Pat sitting right over there um, and uh, it was a time we were doing some things to really stretch ourselves and give sacrificially to missions and um, Pat stood up and family conferences we were looking at the financial report now you know God's really at work if God can show up in a business meeting in a Baptist church amen but I remember Pat stand, standing up and saying brother Darrell he said have you noticed that since our church has made a commitment to give sacrificially to missions that God has blessed us as a church financially with above and beyond of what we need which was beyond our budget and I thought wow and I hadn't really connected the two but it was Pat Porter who had a heart for missions um, that saw the connection between those things the paradoxical truth is that the more we give our lives away the more life we receive Jesus taught that the Bible teaches that um, it doesn't make sense to us humanly uh, but it is God's truth. Uh, for us as a church, a commitment to missions in the cooperative program is more than just money. It is something that we do, that we go. Uh, in fact, uh, Sammy and I, I know some of y'all are thinking, I thought Byron was supposed to be preaching this Sunday, and you were a little disappointed when you got here and you saw this up here. Sorry about that. Next Sunday. Uh, Woohoo! <laughs> Madison's excited. Uh, but Sammy and I leave for Africa tomorrow. We'll be gone the 11th through the 21st. Uh, if you're relatively new to our church, uh, five years ago our church committed to adopting a people group, the Kenyanka people, 
in the rainforest of southeastern Guinea, West Africa. And so we'll be leaving tomorrow. And so y'all pray for us. For us as a church, missions is more than just giving money. It's about going and doing, whether that's in Huntington or whether that's somewhere around the world. Uh, I think through that experience, the cooperative program has become personal to us that um, we've had opportunity to work with missionaries. And uh, if you were here last December, I think the first Sunday, uh, our dear friends Dietrich and Chandra Kaufman and their two girls were here with us, and Dietrich and Chandra were able to share. And uh, all of a sudden, when you know the missionaries, the cooperative program becomes very personal. No, it is the money that allows those who have been called out from our midst to go and to serve without having to come back all the time and raise money or raise their support. No, the cooperative program takes care of that. And every time we're with our missionaries, they always communicate to us, be sure and tell your congregation, thank you for the way that they give. Because without the cooperative program, uh, our missionaries could not do what they do. The cooperative program is almost 100 years old. Um, It began in 1925. And actually, if we're talking about 100-year anniversaries, (laughs) Chandler Maury was the one who told me this morning, he said, Brother Darrell, you realize today is the 115th anniversary of Huntington First Baptist Church. First part of April, 1901. Um, We don't don't have dinner on the grounds, but um, today or any festivities but we probably ought to. We celebrate 115 years. And, you know, I I think of this baton because, you know, there were people that started this church several generations ago, and through the generations they've passed that baton of what God wants to do in us and through us in Huntington and around the world. And we are now stewards of the baton. And I guess that's kind of what I started with because it was my parents that handed me the baton and uh, I'm responsible how I run. You know, the other thing I'm responsible for is passing that baton to the next generation. If we ever drop the baton, uh, you know, the race suffers. So the cooperative program uh, began in 1925. I know this is not something we normally talk about, but it's something very significant, and it's very important that we understand what the cooperative program is because we're passing the baton to the next generation. Before 1925, Southern Baptist operated uh, with what would be called a society method of doing its work. Society. I know that's not a word we normally use, but we might talk about a mission society or a mission board, but a society would be an organization that did missions. And so, obviously, our missions started as a society. And so, uh, there were Bible societies, and there were mission societies that did missions around the world in the United States. Uh, There were also schools and colleges, seminaries, that we supported as Southern Baptists. And this, this is what you have to understand historically. Before 1925, what was happening was that all of these societies had to come to the local churches 
and request support. And so what would happen is, quite honestly, Sunday after Sunday, another representative would be there. And let me tell you, if you don't know, the, the staff knows, I value my time in the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Now, I know I'm going to be back next week, and I've been here for 17 years, but I treasure this time. But what was happening in Southern Baptist life was our missionaries were coming in, and people from the mission boards and societies were coming and saying, hey, we'd like, to, we'd like to talk to your church. And what they were doing Sunday after Sunday is they were then collecting an offering. And the Bible Society would come, and they would make their pitch, and they would take up an offering of the church. And the schools and colleges and seminaries would come, and they would request support, and they would give their you know, re- report on all of this, and all the different missionaries would come in. And really, it kind of came to a head in 1925, and the churches are going, wait a second. All we're doing is hearing from these different people, and we're receiving offerings one after another. And finally, they decided in 1925, there's got to be a better way. And the cooperative program is what they started. And it is, the cooperative program is simply pooling our money and then distributing it to our, uh, to our missionaries, to our schools and colleges, to those that produce literature and Bibles on behalf of us as Southern Baptists, so many other things. It is a way that we, since 1925, cooperated together to fund all of these uh, different causes, missions, Bibles, education. Um, I've got some visuals. I wanted to keep David Shaw engaged this morning. So here's your picture, brother. Some of your pictures. You can go to sleep after this, okay? Um, this is kind of a... I want you to see this flow chart because this is the way that the Southern... Uh, the cooperative program functions. And it starts with you. And um, that individuals in Southern Baptist life they give out of their gratitude for God because they love people and because they trust God. In fact, for us as a church, we believe that the tithe is the standard of giving. And quite honestly, the, none of the process works until, unless it comes down to individuals being obedient to do what God has called them to do. But what happens, the next slide, is then we, we give that to our church. And obviously we have a budget as a church and we give money. Uh, for things that we do uh, and we disciple believers reach the lost, obey the great commission and then our church sends money in through the state convention uh, first and then it goes on to the southern baptist convention and it when it goes to texas baptist it goes it's for uh, evangelism church planning and education and family ministries all of that and then the state convention then sends it on to the national convention. Now, this is a great plan. I have one more slide. Can we show the last slide? This is a great plan because it impacts the world. Here, but listen to me, Southern Baptist people. This is the downside. Is many times through the years we don't get to hear from the missionaries and those that are doing the ministry for us and we're sending in money. And if it becomes impersonal enough that it's just a check that we as a church send, a line item that we vote on as a church, then we lose the sense that it's real and it's, and it's having an impact across the world and we can lose the sense of the significance and the importance of the cooperative program. And so, see, I think when we kind of 
didn't have all of the people come through and parade through and make their presentations and we we lost a little bit of connection that's why for me as a pastor to involve you in missions is critical to passing the baton if you don't understand that uh, we are giving to real people who are making real impacts on people all around the world then and eventually uh, we begin to lose uh, uh, the commitments to the cooperative program. Hmm. Actually, that is what is happening among Southern Baptists. That there's, there is declining support to the cooperative program. If I'm just being real, real, real <laughs> this morning, you realize our international mission board, and these are some round numbers, have had to so trim their budget uh, under David Platt's leadership that they have gone from 5,000 career missionaries in the last year to 3,800 missionaries. And those are some round numbers. It's about a 25% reduction. Do you know why? Because the money's not there. Uh, if I'm also being just real blunt, it's a generational thing. My, my parents' generation, they're the generation that were committed to the church and denomination and structures and those kind of entities. And my generation, I guess, caught a little bit of that, but we're not as committed to those things. And then you get to my kids' generation, and we're wondering, why? Why do we give to this? And we've, we've lost the sense of, of the relay race. Uh, 73% of, well, I really want, I want to talk about the bottom line. Only 3% of what we give to the cooperative program goes to operating budget. Uh, 73% goes to missions. And of that 73, 50% is for international missions and about 23% for North American missions. Uh, our seminaries are supported by 22%. And there's also our Christian Ethics and Religious Liberties. Uh, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission is supported by 1.65%. Um, that's what we do as Southern Baptist. Um, let me say this. And I want to look at the scriptures in the book of Acts today for just a minute. One of the characteristics of a great church is that it has a worldwide vision. The basis of the cooperative program is that the gospel needs to go around the world, that we're responsible for that. The cooperative program is a way that we as a church invest in God's kingdom around the world. Last Sunday we talked about the characteristic of a great church, and I believe that's great love. That Jesus said we must love one another. But I believe one of the other characteristics of a great church is that it must be a church that has a, a worldwide vision. That vision comes from Jesus himself because Jesus had a worldwide vision. And he, he passed it down to his disciples. In the Great Commission he says... Last words before he ascends, Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, 
19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I don't know if they heard it at the time. (laughs) They recorded it later. And I think the impact was a little bit delayed. They realized that Jesus said, no, you have to take this gospel to everybody everywhere. In Luke's account in the book of Acts, that first chapter of Acts, verse 8, before Jesus ascends, he looks at his disciples and he says, but the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, which is where they were, in all Judea and Samaria, which were the regions around them, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus said, no, you've got to take the gospel everywhere. Jesus set before them a worldwide vision. It was the church of Antioch. I want to look at a few scriptures just in, starting in Acts 11. It was the church of Antioch that I believe was the first New Testament church that had a worldwide vision. In Acts 11, we see the start of that church in verse 19. I love this story, but I, I see things a little different than most people. And it just it kind of tickles me to look at this. Uh, Acts eleven nineteen. it says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen. In fact, if you look back to Acts 8, 1, it talks about that. In fact, actually what you see is they, they had this holy huddle in Jerusalem and the apostles were all just staying in their Jerusalem and, and it's like God couldn't get through to them. They go, no, I told you this has got to go everywhere. And what God couldn't do through the prompting of the Holy Spirit, He did through persecution. And He sends persecution on the apostles and the Christians in Jerusalem. They began to scatter. That's what Luke records in Acts 8.1. 8, Acts 8, and he picks up that thought in 11.19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, which is like modern-day Syria, Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean, and Antioch, which is a leading city. In fact, it was a city that was a, a very international cosmopolitan city. It had people from all over the world in Antioch, all kinds of people. Preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. (laughs) So they were scattered, but they continued just to tell the gospel to the people that were like them. Verse 20 is is, is a turning point in the book of Acts. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, and Cyrene is in northern Africa, who when they had come to Antioch, that cosmopolitan city, spoke to the Hellenists, Preaching the Lord Jesus. I get tickled at this because it's like these guys didn't know what they were supposed to be doing. Because the gospel had just kind of stayed among the Jews. It was kind of the party line. We're just going to keep it tight, guys. You know, we're going to stay right here in our little groove. You know, we got our thing going on. And these guys were like loose cannons. We didn't know. Nobody told us we were just supposed to tell the, the, the Jews. And so they began to speak to the Greeks, the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the Lord then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem the old stuffy people in the power center and they sent out Barnabas who was an encourager to go as far as Antioch they had to check it out 
when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, whose story has started a couple chapters before this. So Saul is converted and he preaches in Damascus and then he goes to his home city of Tarsus. And it's been a number of years. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians. Little Christ ones in Antioch. The church of Antioch, I would say, is a church that was the first to have a worldwide vision because they, despite what everybody else was was doing, believed that the gospel was for every one. Jesus didn't just die for people like us. He died for everybody. Amen? (laughs) It didn't matter what your race was, this color of your skin, what language you spoke, even what religion you were. He was the Savior of the world. They believed that the gospel was for everyone. Which leads us to the next story. There's an interlude there in chapter 12, but we come to chapter 13, just the next three verses. Spencer, I'm sorry if if I've upset Rose. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm waking up the babies. I'm sorry. Talk to my mama. I was born loud. No. The implication is that if the gospel is for everyone, that we must take it everywhere. No, it makes sense. And the church at Antioch was the first church that got that truth. Now, we're 2,000 years removed and we're going, duh, they should have figured that out sooner. But the implication is that if the gospel is for everyone, then we must take it everywhere. And so this is, this is also kind of that turning point in the book of Acts. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. And I want you to notice the list of these people. They are a diverse group. Barnabas, who was a Jewish man from the island of Cyprus, we learned earlier in Acts. Simeon, who is called Niger. Simeon was a man, duh, from Africa. He wasn't even from North Africa. No, he was from Africa. He's an African man. Lucius of Cyrene, which is Northern Africa. Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And so this guy has rubbed elbows and been raised with the power people of his day. And Saul, a Jewish man from Tarsus in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. When you read that list, what you realize is the leadership of the Antioch church represented the people of Antioch and that church. They were a diverse group. They really represented people from all over the world. 
And this is what it says in verses 2 and 3. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And the first mission team leaves its home church. And you know what? The rest of the story in the book of Acts, virtually, almost every verse from this point on is impacted by this church, the church of Antioch and their mission teams that are sent out. Primarily Paul. You hear very little about the church at Jerusalem. The driving force throughout the book of Acts and in the first century that took the gospel into all the world centered in the church of Antioch because it was a church that had a worldwide vision. Not everybody went, but I guarantee you they made a great sacrifice because Barnabas and Saul, who became Paul, were the ones that discipled them in those early years. But the day came that after they'd been discipled for a year, the Holy Spirit said, no, y'all got to, if the gospel's for everyone, we got to go everywhere. Barnabas and Saul. God communicated to the church, however he did that through the Holy Spirit, to say, no, y'all must go. And that church made a sacrifice. Not everybody went. Oh, hear me, church. Not everybody went, but somebody went. And I guarantee you the church as a whole of Antioch, I have to believe, reading between the lines, they were all committed to a worldwide vision to take the gospel to everyone, everywhere. They became the driving force in the first century for the expansion of God's kingdom in the known world because they had a great vision which was worldwide. And through the centuries, the baton has been passed to the next generation. To take up the cause of Christ. To take the gospel to everyone, everywhere. And I don't know what your story is. But I started this sermon by saying it was my parents that handed me my baton. And we could read in Hebrews where it talks about that great cloud of witnesses that watches us. Let us run the race with perseverance. My heart as a pastor, a 54-year-old pastor, is I have to make sure that I don't just run the race, but that I pass the baton to the next generation. Uh, went through some details this morning. We generally don't talk about the cooperative program, but I'm afraid if we don't talk about it, we're not going to pass the baton. And something serious is going to happen to Southern Baptist. Uh, for me as a pastor, 
Uh, it's also for, important for me to pass the baton of missions to you as a church. I kind of my thought these weeks, and I'll pick this up after Byron's hit you with whatever God lays on his heart this week, is that if God looked at a church, how would he evaluate it? And I think last Sunday, what, when I looked at the scriptures, I believe a great church has a great love for one another. But this Sunday, what I'm communicating is I believe also a great church has a great vision. And it's a worldwide vision. That the church body as a whole uh, is committed to taking the gospel to everyone, everywhere. I had this thought. Oh, won't you stand with me this morning? Stand. I'm, I'm finished. But I'm going to just keep talking as you stand. It's a preacher trick right there. The music team is coming. Oh, y'all realize we live in little old Huntington, Texas. Nobody even knows where we are. I don't consider us a big church. What I realize, though, one thing is God does not judge us by our size. He judges, judges us. Well, you, know what, you know what he said when he called the first king? He says, I don't look at the outward appearance, but I look at someone's heart. And what I've talked about, a great church is a church that has a great love and has a great vision that's worldwide. It doesn't matter what size it is. And just because a, a, large, a church is a large size does not make it a great church. You know what I realized? That if all the churches in the world that were our size adopted a people group somewhere in the world, and I'm not patting ourselves on the back, we're just doing what God's called us to do. If every church our size and larger adopted a people group missions would be over because all the world would know I'm serious and I don't think what we're doing is heroic in any way it's, it's what God called us to do you're a part of that and whether you're a generation above me whether you're my generation or you're my kids generation we've got to run the race with perseverance and whatever your part is in that do it to the glory of God. Father, today I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. And Father, we would run the race with perseverance following Christ. And so Father, I commit this time to you and I, I pray for any in our midst who need to take this first step of following Christ, that Father, they would respond to the gospel which is for everyone, that they would respond today. Father, for others that may be need to follow as Ashley and Michaela have been baptized to be baptized. I pray, Father, that you would work in their hearts. Father, in each of our hearts, do what you need to do, Father, for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom to the ends of the earth. And I trust this to you in Jesus' name. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus but trust the sweetest friend, but holy trust in Jesus' name.